Well, as you know, um, we are not where we planned to be. Um, We are not where we expected to be three months ago as a community of faith. Um, It began with a reflection on the past year, and that reflection seemed, the spirit seemed to turn up, so to speak, God's great provision in a year when it felt like the world shut down. And for us, God moved and, and continues to move. And, you know, things like our giving being steady and above what it, 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 you would think it would be during this time or global Christmas when we say less under a tree, more for the world and watching God, you know, in a four-week span, you gave $1.1 million, the largest ever global giving in our history, uh, the $100,000 gift that put in the playground out here. And even if you don't have kids, I hope you'll stop out there and see the, watch the kids play on this new playground, a gift to our children's ministry, our learning center. And then, and then lo and behold, a, a gift comes along from a family. It's the largest gift we've ever received as a church, 500,000, a half million dollars, $500,000. And uh, their, their, their gift was used as however God would lead. And it seemed the spirit moved in such a way that we felt like we will use that as the lead gift to retire our mortgage. Their only request, which was so appropriate, was use it in such a way that it builds up generosity in the body. And um, wow, so that's, that has landed us where we are. And so it's led us to at least these three things, okay? So number one, it's led us to using that gift as the lead gift to retire mortgage that at one time, 2008, 2009, was $12 million. And some in the room remember that. Um, it, it is now 1.6 million. But when you add what has been, has been given and designated in savings, $800,000 retires our mortgage. And how much that frees up uh, for future years uh, in generosity and ministry. So we're using that gift in that way. Then, the, then it, it's led to this teaching series. This is why we're not where we plan to be. We're supposed to be in, a, we're supposed to be in Proverbs <laughs> and it would take us through part of the summer, but uh, we're not, we'll get there. No, instead we're in, a, we're in a five-part series we're entitling Generous God and it is about the theology of generosity. And it's, it's necessary because we, we've, we want to anchor ourselves in God's heart and his generosity such that it, it's not, you know, the, the, the end point, the aim, I should, you know, the aim, the goal is not pay off our mortgage. It, the, the, the aim is God's glory and generous hearts. That's where we're going. Along the way, we will see some of these things happen. So we need to be grounded in a theology of generosity. And then last, we said we would take whatever comes in above paying off our mortgage and we'd give it away. Doesn't that sound like the spirit? I mean, I just trust that's the spirit leading us such that we said, okay, we 800,000, we, 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 we've paid off our mortgage, but anything above 800,000, we give it away and, and we give it away now <laughs> because that's how generosity functions. It is a stream that flows. It does not pull up and stagnate or you know, become a lake per se. It, it is a flowing stream that's continually flowing like the hands that are open. That picture of generosity is that what God entrusts to you, it, it rolls off your hands and you need not hold it. Why do we not need to hold on to it for ourselves? because there's more where that came from and there's an endless supply and that's God's heart toward us. Um, you already know this. Y'all, the $800,000 to pay off our mortgage, that's, that's done. That, that was, you know, we announced it last week. We hit that on day 10 
of um, this season, which means you know we got 28 days, so, so day 10, we hit our mortgage. So day 11 to day 28 is give. It's, it's the largest, it's, it's the abundance of God to our local partners and uh, to serve them in ways that, that God wants them served. You already know that we said a large portion of that will go to a local ministry partner, El Shaddai Church, Hispanic church community that we've been with y'all for 15 years. So it's not like just someone new, it's long-term partners. They were, uh, they, they were moved out of their uh, church home in 2010 because of the floods. So, you know, they have been in exile, we could say that, for 11 years. And they, while we're doing this, they're, they're trying to get back home. And so we have looked at their needs and y'all, their, their needs, and I'm not making these numbers up, but it was one, it's, it's a budget of 1.3 million. That was produced last fall. But they have done some work. Um, they, they, they don't have the financial resources, but they have the labor resources of, of, of you know, budgeted of 400,000. So their need is 800,000 to get home. And so we trust the spirit is leading us to help them get home. I've said this a number of times. I've written it in an email to you guys. Please don't miss this moment. If Fellowship Bible Church is your church home, um, your church family, every member in the family is a part of this. And uh, we don't want you to miss um, what God is doing because God's glory and generous hearts, that's the very center of our mission. Well, last week, uh, Rob taught, you know, this is, this is week four. And uh, so last week in this series, Generous God, Rob taught on perhaps one of the greatest paradoxes in life, um, one of the most common themes of scripture, quite frankly, and that is the problem of abundance. Now think about that. You go, wait, wait, I got no problem with abundance. I got a problem with scarcity. <laughs> well, no, the Bible says there's a, there's a great problem with abundance. Um, as Rob put it, uh, without a theological understanding of the problem of abundance, the gift of abundance will destroy you. I'm gonna say it again because it matters. Without a proper theological understanding of the problem of abundance, the gift of abundance will destroy you. Y'all, we are foolish fools to think that we'll handle abundance better than Adam and Eve did. That's crazy. We are, you know, you know we're, we're, we're out of our minds, quite frankly, if we think we can handle abundance better than the nation of Israel as they went into the land of milk and honey. That's ludicrous. <laughs> That's crazy thinking. There's, a, there, there's but one antidote to the problem of abundance. And Rob, Rob touched on it last week. And what I wanna do in this fourth message is I wanna pick up a New Testament story that you are so familiar with but sometimes our familiarity can hide the story within the story that matters most. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter two, verses one through 11. Now, I say there's more to this story than meets the eye. Um, we can stay on the surface of this story, you all, and I'm gonna read it in a moment and, and you can stay on it and I promise you, you'll walk out of here smiling because it's a wonderful, feel-good story. 
But if we can get below the surface of the story appropriately, biblically, correctly get below the surface, then you and I can walk out of this room, I'm not because not of me, but because of the word and the spirit, uh, we can walk out of this room transform. Your heart can be changed because this is in fact a very disruptive story. And it's not just because it, it describes the generosity of God or how to, how to address the problem of abundance, but it invites us to drink the generosity of God. So with that, uh, I'm gonna ask you to stand one more time. Would you do that for me, please? Out of respect for the word, we'll stand. I'm gonna read it so you don't have to read out loud. So just follow along in your Bibles because it's a bit of a longer passage or follow along on the screen. The context, may I say this because we're picking up in, you know, in chapter two. It's the very beginning of Jesus's public ministry. So you know, of the 12 disciples, he's got five so far. So we're on the very, very beginning. God's word to us, John chapter two, beginning in verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You can say this out loud with me. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. You can be seated. Um, uh, last weekend, I had the, the great honor and privilege of, of doing two weddings so on Saturday, literally right up here, I, I officiated the wedding of Millie Taylor. Um, and what a, what a gift and an honor. Uh, um, it, it, you know, I've known Millie since she was a baby. You know, Brad and Barb Taylor were in that photo I showed you of the, of the Franklin cafeteria when we were a core group and we pulled speakers out of a car and stuck them on stands. That was our audio system. So what a gift to stand um, with Millie uh, on, on her wedding day and officiate that. And then Sunday afternoon, y'all, I did another, got to do another wedding and I stood with um, uh, Kate Allen and uh, Brendan Riddle. Now, Kate was one of the voices you heard. So Kate, here's a, here's a young lady who moved here from New York six years ago, locked into a sixth grade class and didn't let them go till they're, they're seniors. And so... Just, just an, uh, an honor to stand with them. Both weddings, may I, I'll just, if I boiled it down, I would say this, they were pure joy. That, that's it, I don't know what else, they were deep joy. That's what it is. They were, I'm gonna use this phrase intentionally, festive 
joy. <laughs> because that's what weddings are. That, that's what God intends them to be. Uh, without a doubt, when we read this story, you know, this should be one of those stories we read in our Bibles and we're just grinning ear to ear. Look at that party. That's amazing. It's festive joy. This is where I want us to take the story and, and, and go below the waterline, so to speak, on it to see the, the, not just the joy of the wedding, but the festive joy of the wedding. Because we've got to unlock that to get at the heart of it. Um, I'm going to give you some context. So you're going to have to stay with me. I'm going to do a fly-through Bible study, per se. I'm going to give us some context, tell the story, and then go, okay, with that context in the story, oh, here's the story within the story. You with me? So stick, stick with me. I'll throw this stuff up on the screen. We're going to start with the biblical literary context. We've got to have this if we're going to properly... You know, we could allegorize the story. We can't do that biblically. We've got to practice these biblical hermeneutics or rules of interpretation. Context is king. There's a couple contexts. The first is the biblical literary context. And the first thing under that is just simply marriage. May I say, you just got to keep this in mind. Marriage from Genesis to Revelation is, is God's picture of his heart for his relationship with his people. It's true all the way through the Bible. Now, may I say this? You don't have to be married. It, it doesn't idolize, you don't wanna idolize marriage, but that's the best human relationship that gets closest to God's heart for his people. Christianity is not keeping the 10 commandments. It's not rules you follow. It is a relationship with a holy God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by which there is an intimacy with God, you all, that is like intimacy between a husband and a wife. That's the first thing on the biblical literary context. The second thing is wine, wine. Now, when you read the story, isn't it striking how much it's about the wine, Eight out of the 11 verses are describing something to do with the wine. John's saying, pay attention to the wine, you know, in this story. Why? Because in the Bible, wine is always associated with blessing and abundance. There's a reason wine shows up everywhere it shows up. Um, according to the Bible, wine is joy and my wife said amen, but no one else did when I did that this morning. No, she'll kill me because she did not say that. She was hoping, she, she said, you shouldn't have said that. But I'm going, hey, let me try that again for anyone who wants to say it. Wine is joy. Amen, yeah. So, um, so wine is joy. Well, why is wine joy? Because in the Bible, the wine is always depicting, symbolizing the joy of the presence of Messiah, the joy of the fullness of the kingdom. They're inseparable. Joy, wine is joy. Jeremiah describes this reality. Again, you know, when the Bible's describing the coming kingdom of God, he's describing when Messiah, or when Messiah gets here, let me tell you what it's gonna look like. Well, Jeremiah says it like this, they will come home with songs of joy they will be radiant because of the Lord's good gifts, the abundant crops of grain. Hear the generous, abundant language. New wine. Their life will be like a watered garden and all their sorrows will be gone. The young women will dance for joy 
and the men, old and young, will join the celebration. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and exchange their sorrows for rejoicing. The priests will enjoy, a, will enjoy abundance and my people, key word, will feast on my good gifts. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so when we think of the coming of Messiah, the fullness of life with him, the abundance of who he is and provision and all his kingdom brings, you know what the Bible puts, puts our eyes on? A wedding feast. All of that, just think about the wedding feast. That's all about, that looks like a wedding feast. All that abundance and provision and all that new wine. Okay, let's go to the cultural social context from biblical literary to cultural and the social context. Three things I'm gonna give you here. And again, you gotta hold these. First is weddings. In this context, weddings, y'all, were not two to four hour affairs. Uh, They could go on for days. The bridegroom would go and get his bride. He would take her from her home and they would have a canopy over them. They would, he would carry her to his home with torches, all his buddies. Did you know they would take a circuitous, circuitous route through town because they just wanted the whole town to get in on it, okay? I want everybody in on this. And he, and he takes his bride to his home not to consummate the marriage, but to begin the celebration. <laughs> and it was a celebration that could go for days. Yes, in fact, it could go for a whole week. That's a lot of wine (laughs) and a lot of food. Um, Secondly, under the cultural social context, getting to that is hospitality. You gotta keep in mind that hospitality in this culture in that day was a sacred duty and delight. You didn't mess around with hospitality. It was was the good and the right of of the community to care for one another. And there was perhaps no greater time of hospitality than to host your son's wedding feast, <laughs> okay? I mean, it was like the, the, the pinnacle of hospitality. Very important. It was the responsibility of the bridegroom to, to provide the wedding feast and all that's involved in that. Um, I, I, you know, you guys know our, our, we've got Darden and two girls well, Darden got married in October, and I'm only gonna make the suggestion that we as Christ followers adopt this ancient Jewish tradition <laughs> that the bridegroom pays for the feast of the wedding. How many are with me on that? The, 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 not everybody, but a few, okay. Yeah, well, the third thing, okay, a social and cultural context is, is the word shame. This is a shame-based culture. So this, you know, the way this, these cultures function, and to this day, many shame-based cultures in our world, Um, you experience good or bad based on what your community says about you. Let me tell you who you are. What the community says about you is who you are. That's where your identity comes from. You violate the community norm. Listen, shame is but a tip of the iceberg. It costs you financially in so many other ways. To run out of wine at your son's wedding. Listen, that... It's not just embarrassing. It would be a blow to your standing in the community. Um, When we, when we, you know, by the way, that guests at these weddings they could take legal recourse 
if you ran out of wine on them? How would you like to pull it out on somebody? <laughs> you ran out of wine? I'm gonna take you to court. Um, so it, it's just, when we take all of that, okay, those contexts, I, I wanna see them because we're gonna lay them on the story, but I hope you feel the weight of what it would mean if the bridegroom ran out of wine. See, that's, that's the weight of the story. If I say it, I, I think it means this, and I'll say it this way. If they run out of wine, they run out of joy. If you run out, it's not just run out of joy at the wedding feast. I'm telling you, you're gonna, you're gonna be empty on joy in life. Now, there's so much more to this story, isn't there? We're just beginning with the context. But I know there's more because John says there's more. Look at verse 11. He says in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Y'all, this word signs is Simeon. It's a different Greek word than other places that, that will translate miracles or wonders into our English. Simeon is, it's a sign. And a sign is always pointing to something. That's the thing to remember. The gospel of John is, is built around seven Simeon, seven signs. And each sign is saying, look, look, look. I'm pointing to who Jesus is and all that he is. So, so if we are going to correctly get at the story within the story without you know, misinterpreting and misapplying this and, and, and getting outside the lines of orthodoxy, then the real key for us is to simply say, how does this sign point to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Well, with that those contexts, let me, let me just walk us through the story as we're getting a little deeper into it. Um, it's highly likely that, that this was a family friend or perhaps a relative of Mary. You notice in the story, she's, she's pretty busy. Um, she's the one that's worried about the wine, right? I mean, there is a master of the feast. I'll talk about him in a moment. What's up with Mary being such a busybody here, you know, taking care of things and whatnot? Well, you, we, we would just see in that perhaps that this is a family you know, friend or it could be a relative that she's, she's clearly responsible for certain parts um, of the wedding. Uh, he come, she comes to Jesus, you know, didn't go to the master of the feast. That's the guy who's in charge of the wine. She goes to her son and she says, they have no wine. Now, why did she go to Jesus? We don't know. We, we can't be definitive. We don't, we don't know. What's important, according to John and the spirit who inspired the writing, are the words she said. They have no wine. Now, Jesus' response has, has been difficult for generations, you know. We don't know how he said it, but you know, the way we read it, it's kind of like, woman? What's that got to... <laughs> this got to do with me? You know, that's how we, that's how I hear it. You know, my hour is not, you come. let me tell you something. Scholars agree. It, it does, it didn't sound like that to the people. Okay. It's, it's not as harsh as it sounds to our Western ears. You know, Jesus on the cross says, woman, behold your son as she handed her care off to John, the disciple. So it's not, it's not that hard, sarcastic edge per se. However, it is a genuine rebuke. Don't, we can't take that away from it. It is a genuine rebuke. 
Um, Jesus is saying, I'm gonna paraphrase this a couple ways. It, it, what, he's meaning, what he means as he says this is this. Their problem with wine is distant from me. That's why he says, what does this have, what do I have to do? Like, like they got a wine problem, but that's not my problem. I mean, it's really what he's saying. That's distant from me. And, and the key here is to go, well, why does Jesus say that's not my problem or that's distant from me? Well, it's in the phrase, because my hour has not yet come. Now, we don't have to guess on this. He mentions my hour has not yet come nine times in this gospel. And every time it refers to the hour of his suffering, crucifixion, and death. See that? So we know what he means when he says that. So this is a really odd interchange. It, it, it goes something like this. Mary comes to Jesus. They have no wine. Jesus to Mary. It's not time for me to die. <laughs> you know, it's like, phew, this stuff's flying over people's heads, I'm sure. Um, it's like a spiritual riddle, okay? And, and the tension's there, and, and it's meant to be. How do we solve it? Mm. Well, that's what we're working on right now. I love Mary's response, literal Greek. Whatever he tells you, do. You know, we could close our Bibles right now and basically say, what's the Christian life about? Mm. I, I think I'd take Mary's statement. Whatever he tells you, do. I'm not being sarcastic when I say this. Whatever you're facing right now, whatever your challenge, your difficulty, your blessing, your hardship, you're letting your kids go, <laughs> graduating from high school, whatever it is, can I tell you this? The Christian life is... is, is it's fundamentally what Mary says, whatever he tells you do. That's at the heart of faith. Um, there are six stone jars. Very important to note, it says they're used for Jewish, Jewish rites of purification. They're stone, the ceramic jars. If they got something dirty in them, you had to crack them, throw them away, because you know the ceramic got unclean. But if they're stone, you see, they don't, it doesn't, the, the uncleanness doesn't penetrate the stone, you know, and you can just rinse it out and use it. Um, now, these jars, they were, you know, 20 to 30 gallons each. They were certainly used for the wedding to wash people's hands and to wash their feet off. That's, that's what they're used for. But it's more than hygienic because those, what does it say? The Jewish rites of purification, i.e., those were the jars that held the water that you would symbolically wash your hands with the water to symbolically cleanse yourself so that you could be in the presence of God. So, so there's a deep spiritual meaning to these jars for the rite of Jewish purification. Well, Jesus has them fill the, 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 the jars, they fill them to the brim. Um, and then he instructs the servants to take a little bit of that wine and take it to the master of the feast. I'm telling you, the master of the feast is the one in charge. I just think this is, would be an interesting pondering because I think about it. How would you like to have been one of those servants? I mean, you're employed, perhaps probably by the master of the feast ultimately, and Jesus has told you to take a ladle of water to the boss and let him taste it. Can you, you know what I'm saying? Can you imagine the risk they took in walking with that to the boss? who might taste it and spit it in their face and say, what in the world are you doing? So they take it, he, it gets to the, we don't know when it turned to wine, he gets to the master of the feast, he tastes it and go, this is the best stuff. 
He calls the bridegroom to pay him a compliment. And he says, most people serve the good wine first when everyone is sober and discerning, basically. But once they've drunk freely, and can I say this? You can argue up and down sideways, but when it says drunk freely, that Greek word means when they were inebriated. We're talking alcoholic wine here, okay? I mean, this is alcohol. And he says, look, they usually serve it when, the, when, the, when they're a bit, tipsy, their taste buds aren't so sharp. And you slip in, you, then you slip in the bad stuff. Doesn't matter, you know? They don't care. They can't discern the taste. Save some money. Uh, and then the story says, the end. It's like, it's like the end. And, and John notes Jesus' glory was revealed. The disciples believed. But we're less, honestly, if you read the story, you're left wondering, and, you know, have it happily ever? What, what is it about? Well, what does it mean? So now here we've done our work. Let's, let's just pull out at least, at least these four things. I'm gonna give you four statements. Each one of them will have massive implications. And I had to do all that work because the first words are gonna come out of my mouth here in a moment. If you don't have all the work we just did, then I, I, would, I would say you could sit there and go, you just pulled that out of thin air. But I, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm, I'm using our text and are practices of biblical hermeneutics, biblical rules for interpreting the Bible, which with that statement number one, Jesus is the end of the old covenant. Right, if I were to say, if I said that 20 minutes ago, you'd go, what passage are we studying here? I thought, I thought we we're talking about a wedding. Jesus is the end of the old covenant. When, when um, Mary says, they have no wine, can I, can I tell you what she, what she was saying? This is the story within the story. She was saying, the old covenant is over. The ritual cleaning that would clean your hands but wouldn't touch your heart, it's bankrupt. They have no wine. It's ineffectual. It's over. Why? Because they weren't bad, but all those rituals and ceremonies were meant to sign, meant to point to Messiah when he comes. He's the only one who can cleanse the heart. Does that make sense? So when she said that, she's saying that it, it, it's, that's over, why? Because Messiah's here. He's at the wedding. <laughs> oh my gosh. Here's the riddle solved. Mary says they have no wine. I could paraphrase it this way. Mary says, Judaism's empty. And Jesus says, it's not time for me to die, mom. Because it would be a little bit later, he would die. But not tonight at the wedding feast. It's not time, Mary, for me to provide the only thing that can cleanse the heart from sin, my blood. Jesus is the end of the old covenant. Am I, now, did, am I saying Mary understood this? No way. Did the disciples get it? No. Did anyone other than Jesus understand this at the moment it was happening? Hmm, I don't think so. Are you and I to understand it, absolutely. Secondly, Jesus is the good wine. You remember Moses in the Old Testament turned water into blood? 
water into blood. Blood's the sign of life and death. Blood's the sign of judgment, death. Everything's dying, you know, at Moses' hands when he turns the water into blood. Here comes Jesus. Keep your Bible story connected. Jesus, the greater Moses, turns water into wine. He's quietly announcing the king has arrived and God's abundant provision is in him and for him. In a moment, we'll come to the Lord's table and I'll say, take that little cup. What's in the cup symbolically? You tell me. Say it. Yeah, yeah, it's wine. Which, and the wine is symbolic of the? So you see all those pots full of water that are now wine? That, sim, that Jewish rites of cleansing were used for? What are they full of now? Symbolically, wine, i.e. the the infinite blood of Christ that washes us all of our sins away. That's what's going on in this story. And I'm telling you, when we see that he's the good wine, can I tell you what erupts in our hearts? Festive joy. Not happiness per se, it is happy. I mean, happiness is good, but I'm talking deep festive joy. Let me ask you a question. Do you... This is conjecture, but just think about it. Do you think Mary would allow her friends to serve bad wine at this wedding? I don't think so, <laughs> right? So, so what, I'm try, what, I, what I would suggest is the wine that was served first, can I tell you this? It was good wine. But any good wine compared to the wine of Jesus, let me tell you something, it's... It's, it's not, it's, it's not, you know what I'm saying? It, it's, let's take that to anything, any good thing. When it goes above Jesus, but any good thing in light of Jesus, listen, he's the better thing. He's the best thing. He is the good wine. Number three, Jesus is the master of the feast. We read this story and you go, wait, three times it says, master of the feast, master of the feast, master of the feast. But Jesus is the master of the feast. Who's in charge at this wedding? See, that's the fun part of this story, isn't it? This wedding is about to implode. And the master of the feast can do nothing. Mary can do nothing because the master of the feast is Jesus. Which takes us to the fourth thing. Jesus is the bridegroom. Why did the master of the feast go to the bridegroom? Because who's responsible for the wine at the feast? Who? Say it out loud. The bridegroom. The bridegroom's responsible and we're putting these pieces of the story together. It is the responsibility of the bridegroom to ensure adequate provisions for the feast. But we know something that those at the wedding didn't see. They, they couldn't see this, but we do. The real bridegroom is the rabbi, the son of Mary. And while celebrating this particular wedding, it's wonderful that he provided for this wedding. But surely as this story unfolds and the story within the story, we recognize that Jesus has his eyes on a future wedding his own. Revelation 19, 
Listen, if you've put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, there is a future wedding, the marriage supper of the lamb. And at that, can I tell you, at that marriage supper, that, that is a picture of Jesus wed to his bride, the church. And at that wedding supper of the lamb, can I tell you, the, the festive joy that's ours to come is incomprehensible to you and I today. Uh, it will be eternally multiplied because, because of, you know why? Because the bridegroom at this, the true bridegroom sheds his blood on our behalf and ensures our future. By the way, Revelation 21 says, where every tear is wiped away and death is no more. And there's no longer any mourning, nor crying, nor pain, and all that is broken is made whole, and all that is wrong is made right. All that is empty is made full to the brim and overflowing forever and ever and ever. When Isaiah pictured that feast, that, that consummation and fullness of the kingdom, he said it this way, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. If there's anything, you know, Jesus is pointing to, he says, at that feast, just y'all know, you will never run out of wine because the joy is forever. Now, the wine Jesus makes here, we, we can note this because he tells us it's 20 to, 30, 20 to 30 gallons in each one. Y'all, that's 700 to 900 bottles of wine. That's way too much wine. Okay, I don't care how, if you're there a week. Why so much wine, Jesus? I would suggest at least these two things. Number one, because God is predisposed to generosity. He would do no, he would do no less than not just provide but perhaps he provided a year's wage for that young couple. We don't know, but it was more than enough. God is predisposed, predisposed to generosity. And secondly, because this was a sign. That's why. Because, because this moment was pointing to that moment where the wine is without limit. That's why the generosity now. And I'm gonna invite us to go to that table taking our elements for the Lord's table. I'm gonna invite the worship team out. We will celebrate that together. As you're taking your bread and cup, I want you to go ahead and take the bread and the cup and, and separate them so that you have the two that you can receive them. I'll pray for us in a moment. What this story is telling us is that the immeasurable abundance of the kingdom of God, listen you all, has broken in. Yes, it, there is a future for abundance, but you all, it's now. That's why he did it at this wedding. That's why he does it in your life and my life today. It is now. Will we, will we drink the good wine of his great abundance or will we, hmm, will, we, will we be settling for lesser wines of this world? Pray with me, Lord Jesus, for your body that was broken for us, we are here to say thank you and we are here to receive it with grateful hearts. We thank you for this wonderful story that you had recorded, that you did, that you know, while the original audience right there didn't get it all, we, we actually get to see more than they could. 
And when we really see it, it changes our hearts. For your body broken for us, we say thank you. Take and eat the bread. And Lord Jesus, for your, your blood poured out, um, thank you for this amazing picture of these jars brimming with water. Oh, but it's way more than purification water. It is the wine of your joy and presence and it is truly a picture of the eternal satisfaction of the wrath of God because of your blood, your life poured out. Jesus, we proclaim your death and resurrection and we proclaim that you're coming again one day as we take these elements, take and drink the cup. Let's stand together. Father, may we lift our voices to remind ourselves that if this story tells us anything, it's reminding us and calling us to see that you in Christ Jesus are always more than enough, always faithful. You're bent toward generosity.